We're continuing this morning with our series through the book of Acts. This morning we're looking at Acts chapter 17. I'll begin reading in verse 22 as we look at Paul's sermon to the Greek philosophers in Athens, Greece. Would you please stand now for the reading of God's word again. Acts chapter 17. I will begin reading in verse 22. So Paul, standing in the midst of the Areopagus, said, Men of Athens, I perceive that in every way you are very religious. For as I passed along and observed the objects of your worship, I found also an altar with this inscription, To the unknown God. What therefore you worship is unknown, this I proclaim to you. The God who made the world and everything in it, being Lord of heaven and earth, does not live in temples made by man. Nor is he served by human hands as though he needed anything, since he himself gives to all mankind life and breath and everything. And he made from one man every nation of mankind to live on all the face of the earth, having determined allotted periods and the boundaries of their dwelling place, that they should seek God and the hope that they might feel their way toward him and find him. Yet he is actually not far from each one of us. For in him we live and move and have our being. As even some of your own poets have said, for we are indeed his offspring. Being then God's offspring, we ought not to think the divine being as like gold or silver or stone, an image formed by the art and imagination of man. The times of ignorance God overlooked, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent. Because he has fixed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom he has appointed. And of this he has given assurance to all by raising him from the dead. Now when they heard of the resurrection of the dead, some mocked. But others said, we will hear you again about this. So Paul went out from their midst. But some men joined him and believed, among whom also were Dionysius the Areopagite, and a woman named Damaris, and others with them. This is the word of the Lord. And please be seated. When I was in college, I joined the Atheist Agnostic Club at Texas A&M University. Now, it was only for a semester, and I did not pay any dues. So if anybody's listening to this, I'm sorry. <laughs> but for those four months, the good, open-minded people of the Atheist Agnostic Club allowed me a Christian, to join them. Now what's interesting about the Atheist Agnostic Club is that it wasn't just Atheist Agnostics, but it was people of all backgrounds and beliefs. People who believed in many, many gods, people who believed in New Age philosophy, and then of course there was me. And the, and the way that each meeting would happen, it was all every week the same. There was about 25 of us and we would sit in a circle and each one of us would take turns introducing ourselves and then stating our particular system of belief. So it would go like this. Hello, my name is Stephen. I'm an atheist. Hello, my name is Rebecca, and I'm agnostic. Hello, my name is Mark, and I'm a pantheist. What's a pantheist? Well, somebody who believes that God is the universe. And then it would get around to me. Hello, my name is Paul and I'm a Christian. 
After we introduced ourselves, each week was essentially the same. Somebody would take their turn in introducing the discussion topic for that given week. Each week, we would look at some question that we would attempt to answer together. For example, if there is no God, then where did the world come from? If God is all-powerful, then why is there still evil in the world? In a world without God, who gets to decide what is right and what is wrong? Is there any such thing as life after death? Is it possible to prove or disprove the existence of God? It only took a few weeks for me to recognize something remarkable about the Atheist Agnostic Club. That for a bunch of people who questioned the existence of God, they sure talked about him a whole lot. Every single week, we would talk about God. Why? Why would a bunch of people who either did not believe or at least questioned the belief of God be so fascinated, so fixated on him? Because deep down, every single human being, regardless of your background, regardless of your belief, have deep longings Overwhelming questions that can only be satisfied by God and the gospel of Jesus Christ. You and I live in a time of history that has been called, been increasingly described, a secular age. Secular not in the terms that God is absolutely nowhere, but secular in the sense that he is just one option among many different beliefs that are plausible. Just like the atheist agnostic club. He's just an option. An option that we should even question. Now for some of you, this emerging secular age gives you fear. In fact, you're angry. Outraged. After all, what is to happen to our culture? What is to happen to our government? to our cities, to our country, to our common way of life, if we have not been centered on the norms of a Christian worldview. Others of you this morning are here in a church just like this, and perhaps you even come every single week. But if you're going to be honest, you find yourself having the same exact questions posed by our secular age. Questions like, if God is all good, then why is life so painful? If God is all-powerful, then why has he allowed evil to exist in the world? If God is loving, then why are his followers sometimes so hurtful? My friends, none of this is anything new. 2,000 years ago, the Apostle Paul stood in the middle of Athens, Greece, And preached a sermon to a secular society not unlike our own. Where the existence and character of God was questioned. Where who he was was just one idea among many different competing philosophies. This morning I want to look very briefly at just four key aspects of his sermon. Four attributes of God that satisfy the deepest longings of our heart. What I want us to see 
is that you can try as hard as you can to remove God from a culture, but you cannot erase his fingerprints from creation. There is nothing that you can do to silence the powerful, authoritative call of the gospel of Jesus Christ, even in a secular age. So the first thing that Paul wants us to see this morning is this, that God is creator. God is creator. There is a reason why every single worldview essentially has this fundamental question. How did we get here? Where did the universe come from? And so Paul begins his sermon in a very unusual way. I want you to look with me at verse 22. Paul begins by saying this, Men of Athens, I perceive that in every way you are very religious. Now, before we can understand what Paul is saying, we have to understand where Paul was standing. Paul was standing in the middle of the Areopagus. The Areopagus was like a court, a council, a meeting of the highest minds of Greek thought and life. It was the place where Greek philosophers and thinkers, culture makers would come and debate who God is if he exists. And what that means for Greek society and life. And what's so amazing is that we are told by Luke that the Epicurean and Stoic philosophers in Athens, Greece, invited Paul to come and to preach to them, to tell them about Jesus and the resurrection. And so this is Paul's opening line to a bunch of pagan philosophers Men of Athens, I perceive that in every way you are very religious. What does he mean by that? How could a bunch of philosophers in a secular age be called religious? Because the ironic thing is that in a secular age, we are actually surrounded by religion. Religion is everywhere. It was for them, it was for us today as well. You see, God has not been removed from our culture. God has been replaced. We live in an incredibly religious culture. We are religiously devoted to all kinds of created things like money and sex and success, wealth and power, prestige. So how can Paul call any of this religious? I think Luke gives us a clue. Verse 16, look with me in your bulletin. It says, now while Paul was waiting for them at Athens, his spirit was provoked within him as he saw that the city was full of idols. As Paul looked at all the idols in Athens, Greece, Luke tells us that his spirit was provoked. The original word there is a mixture of anger and sorrow. As Paul saw these idols in this culture, he was angry. He was angry because he saw idolatry for what it really is. It is sin. It is rebellion against the glory and majesty and authority of God. But he was also filled with sorrow. Because not only is idolatry sin, it is also slavery. It entangles us. It traps us. 
It beckons to us, and we find ourselves enslaved by it. So my question to you this morning is, are you provoked anymore by the idols of our age? Are you bothered anymore, or do you find yourself numb, so enslaved by them that you don't even recognize just how pervasive they are in your own heart and mind? And so what do we do? What is the antidote to our idolatry? Paul tells us, verse 23, For as I passed along and observed the objects of your worship, I found also an altar with this inscription, To the unknown God, what therefore you worship as unknown, this I proclaim to you, the God who made the world and everything in it, being Lord of heaven and earth, does not live in temples Made by man. In other words, the way that we begin to uproot and discard the idols of our heart is not simply to just avoid them, but it's to replace them once more with the glory and majesty of God. Every idol that you and I worship is a created thing. God is the creator. He is the one who made heaven and earth and everything in it. The psalmist tells us that the heavens declare the glory of his name. Every single detail in his creation declares his praise. Every strand of DNA, every subatomic particle in the universe Every valley, every mountain, every tree, every ocean, every human being declares that God is creator and worthy of our praise. And so in order for us to begin to destroy the idols of the heart, we must learn to worship God as our creator and to see him again for who he is. This morning, our profession of faith is taken from Colossians chapter 1. I invite you to go home this week and do battle with it. Because every word is an idol killer. It declares the preeminence of Jesus Christ, who through him and for him and to him all things were made. But this creator God that we worship, who's transcendent, whose majestic is also near. The second thing that we need to see is that God is Father. God is Father. This transcendent God is also imminent. He is personal. He knows every hair on our head and every thought in our mind, every idol that is taken up resident in our heart. Look at verse 27. Paul says that God is actually not far from each one of us. I love this not only because of what Paul said, but who he is saying it to. Remember, he's talking to a bunch of secular Greek philosophers, pagans, people who questioned the existence of God or even gods. And he's saying, you're not far. God is not far from every one of you. And to prove his point, he quotes two unlikely sources. If you ever read Paul's sermons in the book of Acts, you'll notice that many of them have a pattern. That he'll do what many of the evangelists and apostles did, that they would go and quote Old Testament scripture in order to declare the gospel. 
And yet here Paul is standing in the midst of the Areopagus. And he doesn't go to scripture. He quotes poetry. Greek poetry. Why? One of them writes this, In him we live and move and have our being. The other said, For we are indeed his offspring. See, think Paul is pointing out to us that all truth is God's truth. And that even a Greek poet can stumble upon something that declares the truth of who God is. So it is in our secular age today that we have tried as hard as we can as a culture to escape from him. We will never outrun him. And you can see this even in our own poets. Just this last year at the Grammys, the British singer-songwriter Sam Smith sang a song, a powerful song called Pray. Now you may or may not know who Sam Smith is, but I want you to listen carefully to the lyrics. Sam Smith says, I've never believed in you, but I'm going to pray. You won't find me in church or reading the Bible. I am still here, and I'm still your disciple. I'm down on my knees. I'm begging you, please. I'm broken, alone, and afraid. It's raw and it's honest. The reason I think it resonates in our culture is because it reflects what so many people feel. That though they question God, though they don't know what he's doing, they want so badly for him to be true. They want so badly to believe in something real and someone who's actually going to be there for them. Why? Why? Because we're made in the image of God. You and I have been hardwired to long for the love and affection of our Heavenly Father in the same way that we long for the affection of our earthly fathers. We want to know Him. We want to be known by Him. And more than that, we want to be loved by Him. And so we find ourselves at a time when we have never been more lonely. I mean, ironically... Ironically, as we are all so incredibly lonely, we've never been so connected. We find ourselves connected through email and text messages, Instagram, Facebook, MySpace. I'm kidding. I was just seeing if you're paying attention. <laughs> yeah, okay. Somebody like, oh, really? I just got on MySpace. Okay. We're so disconnected because every single tweet is longing to just make a connection with somebody. My wife, Jenny, recently got an email from her high school telling her that she needed to be home and at her phone at least between the hours of six and nine on a Wednesday night. And the reason is because a junior or senior for her, from her old school was going to give her a call because they were teaching these high school students, how to have actual phone conversations with human beings. <laughs> I kid you not. It was both really funny and also incredibly sad. And he did a great job, by the way. He did an awesome job. Why, why, does, why is there so much energy that we put into all of this? 
Because we desperately want to be known. Brothers and sisters, you are known. You are known even better than you know yourself. The God who made you, who crafted you in his mother's womb, he knows you by name and he loves you. He loves you. And this is why our idolatry and our sin is so heinous. Because when we do, we turn our backs on him and we do it every day. Third thing, God is judge. God is judge. This past week, I was in Colorado for a small gathering of pastors from our denomination. We were hard at work trying to discuss church renewal. I know, you can feel bad for me. It's a hard place to be. And at breakfast, I was discussing with some of the other pastors this rise of our secular age. And one of them was lamenting about it. And another said that he had just recently read one of the most important articles he's read on the subject in the last decade. Now, when somebody says that, you find the nearest source of internet and you download it as quickly as possible and read it, which is what I did. And I quickly recognized that I think this pastor is exactly right. The article is entitled, The Strange Persistence of Guilt, by a man named Wilfred McClay. Now, I'd never heard of Wilfred McClay, but I did look him up, and uh, I was told that he's an intellectual historian. I don't know what that means. But here's the point. Here's the point. In his article, what he basically argues is this. You cannot get rid of guilt by trying to get rid of God. That essentially our secular age, the great lie, is that if we can just get rid of God and get rid of his judgment, then guilt will go away with it. We'll no longer have to worry about shame and worry about the bad things that we do and worry about guilt. If there is no God, then there would be no guilt. And here's the problem with that. The exact opposite is true. You see, it... it, Only a child has to recognize that every person recognizes the difference between right and wrong. And we are confronted by our wrongs every single day. And the problem with thinking that if you get rid of God, you get rid of guilt is this. Is that if there is no God, then you are left with your guilt and it will crush you. And so what do you do? What do you do with the guilt that you bear Every single day, God is judge. And he has sent his son, Jesus Christ, to judge the world in righteousness and in truth. And not only is he judge, but he's also our justifier. The last thing I want to look at before we sing is this, that our God is Savior. Our God is Savior. Paul ends his sermon with these words, God has given assurance to all by raising Christ from the dead. This is our assurance. Jesus Christ came to earth and lived a life that we could have never lived. He died in your place and he did not stay dead but he rose again on the third day that you would have life and have it abundantly. Paul declared this to a bunch of Greek philosophers in the middle of Athens, Greece. 
And Luke tells us about their response. Verse 32. When they heard of the resurrection of the dead, some mocked. But others said, we will hear you again about this. You see, to the Greek ear, the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ was utter foolishness. It's nonsense. It has no plausible explanation. To our modern ears in our current secular age, it's foolishness. Why? Because prevailing wisdom says, fix yourself, heal yourself, try harder, clean up your act, make up for the guilt in your life by just being a better person. Do you feel overwhelmed and anxious? Then just be more successful, press in even harder. Do you find yourself in despair and lonely? then try to find connection in ways that will never actually connect you to another human being. The cross is foolishness to us, but thanks be to God that what seems like foolishness is his great and perfect wisdom. We're told that there were two people that day who heard the gospel and believed One was a woman named Damaris. The other was a man named Dionysius. Luke tells us that he was an Areopagite. That just means that he was one of those Greek philosophers. And in hearing the gospel, the good news of the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ, he became a believer just like Natalia. And we're told that later, this man Dionysius would later become the bishop in charge of the church in Athens, Greece, that God would use him to further proclaim the gospel right there in his own city in a secular age. Brothers and sisters of Christ, where do you find your assurance this morning? Where do you find your hope? What are you leaning on? What are you relying on? Are you relying on some created thing that will never actually deliver Or have you placed your assurance, your hope in the God who is our salvation, who has given us the death and resurrection of his son that we might have life and be filled with the fullness of joy? God is creator. He's worthy of our praise. He is father. He knows everything about you. He is judge and all those who are left in their sin will be judged according to their sin and their guilt will crush them. Thanks be to God that this guilt that belonged to you and to me was placed on his son and he conquered it on the cross. Let's respond now by turning from our idols and returning to our majestic God who has done everything to make us his own. Let's pray. Father, we ask that you would be with us now. I lift up that if there's anybody here this morning who does not know you, who does not know the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ, that they would respond to the death and resurrection of your son, that they would believe and entrust their guilt to his body on the tree, and that on the cross they would know that they have been redeemed, and that today would be the day that they come to faith 
and the life that they have in the resurrection. God, we also pray for those of us this morning that though we've grown up in the church, though we've known you for years and years and years, we find ourselves despondent and cynical, wondering where you are and what you are doing in a world that seems so far from you. God, give us new eyes to see the way that you are building your church right here and right now. Help us to know that there is nothing that will stop your church and nothing will ever silence the gospel. We pray that you would do your work in and through the gospel of Jesus Christ in us. Amen.